0: We've been for uh, just over a year now studying verse by verse through the book of Hebrews, and I'm guessing for those that have been with us for the span of this study, there have been some verses that when we came to them, you probably recognized them. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, uh, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. You've probably heard that before. Hebrews 7, words that really we just sang uh, he ever lives to intercede for us. Hebrews twelve, uh, fix your eyes upon Jesus. I think we come today to another of those very, very famous, well-known verses in Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse eight. I, I think that maybe of all the the three hundred and three verses in Hebrews, this is the one that may be the most well-known. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today. And forever. And it is well known for good reason because the substance of Christianity, the substance of our faith, rests upon the unchanging nature of Jesus Christ. Now, before I read God's word, let's pray for His Spirit to help us. Spirit, we come to you as not only uh, the one who inspired the biblical authors to write these words, but you illumine them to us. If, If we do not have your help, then this is just an academic exercise of us trying to understand an ancient text, but when you are with us, this is the living God speaking to your people. So we pray that you would speak, Lord, and give us the humility to listen. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Listen to the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter 13, starting at verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. But we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Don't neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I want you to imagine for a moment. This is an exercise we've done a few times through the book of Hebrews, but I want you to imagine you are a first century Jewish Christian among those who would have been receiving this letter, the the letter to the Hebrews. You would have been raised Jewish. So that means all your life, prior to the last few years, probably of coming to know Christ, all your life, the pattern was to go to the temple if you were in Jerusalem, or to go to the synagogues that were spread around. And you would do that week after week, and you would observe the ceremonies and the rituals of Judaism. And unlike Judaism today, which is largely a marginal fringe religion in our world in terms of numbers, it's a very small minority, to be Jewish in the first century in Jerusalem and the surrounding area was very much to be among the vast majority of people see everybody who wasn't a Jew was an outsider and then someone shared the word of God with you and your whole life changes and you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and you realize that all those rituals and ceremonies of the Old Testament that you've been doing all your life it's not that they were wrong but that they've been fulfilled, they've been completed in Jesus Christ. And so you leave all of that behind, and rather than going to the temple to worship, you're worshiping in people's homes, in their living room, or in open fields, or sometimes they're even having to do it under the cover of darkness in catacombs and and cemeteries. Rather than being in the majority crowd, you are now a fringe In fact, many people in society look at you as if you have joined a cult by following Christ. Beyond that, we saw this last week in in, uh, verse 7, some of the leaders, probably who were instrumental in your own faith, seem to have gone on to glory. They seem to have died. Whether it was old age or martyrdom, we're not told. But just think about that for a moment. From the point of coming to know Jesus Christ until this moment, your entire world has been flipped upside down, and the only constant in your life has been change. What was happening for many in that position? They're looking around. They're tired of being on the fringes. They miss the temple. They see persecution on the horizon, and they've taken their eyes off of Jesus and some of them have turned away from the faith. Others are thinking about it. They're weary, they're scared, they do not know what tomorrow may bring. That's why this passage is so wonderful. It's written to remind them and us that how we feel does not change who Jesus is. It's so important for the Christian life because everything about the Christian life hinges not on our circumstances, not on how the world receives or views Christianity. It all hinges upon who Jesus is. And so you and I... Whatever circumstances we are facing, we must keep this truth at the center of our eyes and the center of our hearts that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That is the truth that anchors us amidst a world that is constantly in the midst of storms. You know, there won't be a time this side of heaven in which the storms that come into our lives will completely cease. But when our hearts are anchored to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who himself is able to calm the storm or to calm our hearts, we can rest in the fact that Jesus Christ has always been the same, is the same, and will always be the same, no matter what our circumstances tell us. And it's in that that we find strength for today and hope for tomorrow. So we're going to look at Jesus in three tenses today. We're going to look at Jesus yesterday, who he is today, and who he will be forever. So first, let's look at Jesus yesterday. And we need a little bit of context here, especially for those who are visiting and haven't been with us through this whole study of Hebrews Jesus Christ is the greatest person to ever live, and I mean that both in the wonder of who he is, but also the magnitude of the roles that he fulfilled. In the Old Testament, there were were three roles, three what we call offices, and all of them were fulfilled in the Old Testament by imperfect people. So so you had prophets in the Old Testament, and the prophet's job was to speak the word of God, but the prophets weren't God himself, and so all they could do is say, thus says the Lord. They didn't write scripture themselves, they simply wrote what God instructed them by the Holy Spirit. There were kings, and the king's job was to lead the people, but not according to his own will, not subjecting them to his own rules, but The king himself must be subject to the word of God before he subjected the people to it. And if you've read through the Old Testament, you know that there were more bad kings, kings who went their own way, than there were good kings who who followed God's way. So there were prophets, there were uh, kings, and then there were priests. That was the third role or office we see in the Old Testament. The priest's job was to make the people presentable before God, he the priest's job was to to make the people clean the only problem is the priests actually couldn't do that they could pronounce the people clean uh, but they couldn't make the people clean they could bring sacrifices for the people but you know before they could bring a sacrifice for the people they had to bring sacrifices for themselves because they themselves were sinners And even those sacrifices, which were given millions of times over the 1400 years from the time Moses was given the law to the time Jesus fulfilled it, those millions of sacrifices that the priests brought on behalf of the people couldn't take away sin. In his earthly ministry, Jesus fulfilled all of those roles perfectly. He was the prophet who did not say, thus says the Lord, but he said, surely I say to you. In other words, he could speak with the authority of God because he is God. He is the great king who never led his people to go down roads. He himself would not go. And he he shows us that by going to the cross for his people. And then he was the perfect priest who by the sacrifice of his own life, made his people perfectly presentable before God. Now, those of you that have been with us for a year, let me ask you, which of those three offices has Hebrews really been focusing on? Well, it's the priestly office. Hebrews has been all about how Jesus is the better priest. Those priests, those priests were imperfect. Those priests would one day die and couldn't continue doing their job, those priests never got to sit down because there were always more sacrifices to make. The whole book of Hebrews really has been emphasizing Jesus as the better priest. Now, most of us, I'm guessing, don't think in terms of Jesus as our priest. That's not primarily the way that we think about him. We, we know it's true, but that's not primarily the way we think about him. That's the way theologically Hebrews presents him to us. We think about him as priest in the way that the gospels present him to us. The gospels teach us about the Jesus who touched the untouchable, right? One of the pictures of the Old Testament, of sin in the Old Testament, was that lepers were off limits. They were untouchable people. Nobody would go near them unless, by some miracle, their leprosy was cured. The priest could not go and make them clean. Now, if they were clean, if they had been cured of their leprosy, then the priest could pronounce them clean, but the priest could not make them clean. But, you know, we see it in Jesus' ministry. In the, all throughout the Gospels, lepers came to him, and he touched them, and he took away their leprosy. Not only that, but he could pronounce them clean. He could forgive their sins. So Jesus, as a priest in the Gospels, touched the untouchable. You know what else he did? He loved the unlovable. And one of the things that, that really upset the religious leaders of Jesus' day was that he spent time with sinners, They were often referred to kind of as shorthand tax collectors and prostitutes. That was the epitome of sin in the Old Testament. And Jesus was drawn to them, not because he liked how they were living, but because he was concerned about where they were heading. He knew that continued to to go down the path of their sin would lead them to, to the judgment seat of God. And Jesus went to them with the good news of the gospel, and they came to him. They were drawn to him. Unlike any religious leader they had ever met, they met in Jesus a man that would love the unlovable. So he touched the untouchable, he loved the unlovable, and he welcomed the unwelcome. This is the picture the gospels present of Jesus as our priest. He welcomed the unwelcome. Just think of, on one occasion, children came to Jesus And the disciples are there, and they're sort of functioning as Jesus' bodyguards at this point, or at least they think they are, and they're really annoyed because the children are noisy and unruly. Jesus, we've got real kingdom business to attend to. Get these kids out of here. What does Jesus say? No, no, no. Children don't get in the way of kingdom business. Children are kingdom business. So let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, the gospel presents in history what Hebrews presents theologically, that Jesus is our great high priest. And when we survey his life and the way he touched the untouchable, loved the unlovable, and welcomed the unwelcome, we see a heart unlike any who has ever graced the face of this world. We need to understand Jesus wasn't just a good guy. He was. He, he was perfect in every way. But he wasn't even just concerned about taking away leprosy or, or giving, uh, healing the lame. Those weren't really what he was concerned with. You know, he would meet with people and he would talk to them about their sight or their leprosy or their lameness. And he would say things like this You know, leprosy is not really your biggest problem. Blindness, not really your biggest problem. Your lame legs, those aren't really your biggest problem. And that means being cured of leprosy, that's not really your greatest need. Do you know what your greatest need is? Your greatest need is salvation. Now that would come as a surprise to them because if I'm sitting there with lame legs, I'd be thinking, you know, it'd be really nice to walk. It'd be really nice to be cleansed of this leprosy. Jesus is saying, you know what? Even if you were cleansed of the leprosy, even if you were able to walk, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? You see, your greatest need is not material or physical. Your greatest need is spiritual. And Jesus alone is able to meet that need. Now, I, I think we struggle with falling into that same, that same rut of thinking our biggest needs are material. You know, if only I had more money, I'd really be happy. I, I, if only I had a better job. If only my spouse were a little bit easier to deal with. You know, if I had those things, that's what I really need. And if I had those things, then I really would have the good life. Jesus says, let me tell you what your real need is. You need salvation. And the need that they had and that we have, he met in himself. Think of Jesus, the eternal son of God, praised by the angels in heaven from from eternity past, departing heaven coming to earth to be born to a a poor unwed couple, that there would be rumors about him, coming to a world that would not understand him, coming, the creator of the world, the creator of all that is good, coming under law, being raised by sinful people, being misunderstood and scorned and spat upon and ridiculed. Why did he do all that? To save untouchable, unlovable, unwelcome people. You know, speaking of people like that, Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. You can imagine some of the religious leaders saying, You came for people like that? You came for lepers? You came for, for sinners? And what did Jesus say to them? I didn't come for the righteous. And he doesn't mean that there are some of you that don't need me. He's saying there's some of you that don't think you need me. I didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. See, in his great love for us, our Lord took our sins upon himself as our great high priest. The Old Testament priests, all they could do is symbolically lay the people's sins on the animal and then the animal sacrificed. And Jesus says to his father, lay the sins of my people on me and I will pay the price. See, that's what he did. It was our great high priest. That explains verse 11. Look back at your text with me. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now what in the world is he talking about? He's thinking back to that Old Testament sacrificial system where the altar was the place that animals were sacrificed, so bulls and goats and so many other animals day after day after day after day after day for 1400 years had been brought and sacrificed for the sins of the people. But in the Old Testament, certain types of sacrifices, after they were made, could be eaten. The priests would eat a share of it, and the people would eat a share. But he's making this wonderful point. We have an altar, but it's not a stone table, it's the cross. And our sacrifice left nothing behind because he was resurrected. This explains the sheer simplicity of Christian worship. There's no altar, no reenactment of the sacrifice, no visible imagery, because the whole point is that our altar, the cross, is empty. The point of Christianity, the hope of Christianity, is that the cross is empty because Jesus still lives today. Here's the problem, I think. For most of us, we think about it like this. You know, if I had lived 2,000 years ago and I could just see Jesus walk the earth, it would be so, easier, so much easier to trust him, wouldn't it? You know, if I could have just seen the love in his eyes, then I, I, I would never wonder if he was able to save me. If I could have seen him in the flesh, it would have been so easy to trust him. If I had seen him resurrected, I would never struggle with faith again. Now you know that's not true because we see it all throughout the Gospels and the Scriptures. The whole New Testament points to faith is always hard and in some ways uh, Jesus says better are those who have believed and not seen. But it can be difficult because Jesus feels distant. He feels remote. Have things changed since Jesus was on earth? Well Hebrews says the Jesus of yesterday is the same as Jesus today. So let's think about who Jesus is today. Because of sin, humans are very fickle, aren't we? We're just a fickle people. We can be moody, right? Is your mood different on a Monday morning than a Friday afternoon? Of course it is. People. Uh, friends can change. They can disappoint us. We can disappoint them. Our, our dearest loved ones, sometimes they change and disappoint us. Sometimes they don't change, and that disappoints us. You, you know, You know the old joke about marriage. He marries her hoping that she won't change. She marries him hoping that she can change him. People change. And in our culture now, with with the internet age, it can happen overnight. So yesterday's heroes can become tomorrow's villains through cancel culture, can't they? It's amazing how fickle we are. And Hebrews is saying, do you know what your one comfort must be? Jesus will never change from being the dependable, faithful Savior that he's always been that he is today and always will be you will always be able to count on Jesus everything else in this world will change that's actually by design we'll come to that in a few minutes but Jesus doesn't he doesn't love us one day and change his mind about us the next there is no cancel culture in Jesus Christ he doesn't set his love upon you and then get caught off guard by something you did and say, never mind, I am done with them. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, that's, I love the doctrine of God's sovereign election as it's taught in Scripture. Look with me at Ephesians 1 for a moment. If you think predestination and election, those are things kind of you debate in ivory towers remote from anything useful in life, you have never really understood them. These are the most practical doctrines on the face of the earth. Look at Ephesians 1 for a moment, starting at verse 3. And Paul's heart, I'm going to try to capture it with my voice, but I can't. Paul's heart is about to leap out with joy. Do you see what I'm saying? This is not ivory tower theology. This is how you make it from day to day in a fallen world that Jesus Christ has set his love upon me independent of anything I've ever done or will do from before the foundation of the world. See, if I really understand things like untouchable, unlovable, unwelcome people, I understand that I am them and that nothing about me is worthy of the love of Jesus Christ. And if it were up to me to do something to make Jesus love me, I couldn't do it in a million lifetimes. But Ephesians tells us before the foundation of the world, he chose us in him. Why? I have no idea. But it's the greatest truth, isn't it? It's the substance of our hope, isn't it? That by His own sovereign grace, and not because of anything He foresaw in us, in fact, what He foresaw in us was us at our worst. He chose us, anyways, to be His people. Now, sometimes people will say, well, yeah, I think God looked down the corridors of time and saw who would choose him, and then he chose them. That's not how it works. He chose us before the foundation of the world, not because he foresaw faith in us, because there would be no faith apart from his work in us. But he chose us simply by his grace, and he gives us faith as a gift of his grace. It's not the cause of his grace, it's the gift of his grace, it's the result of his grace. And he who began a good work in us will carry it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That's good enough news to make Presbyterians say amen, isn't it? His great love that he showed to sinners, that hasn't changed. His patience with slow learning disciples it hasn't changed. His dogged determination to seek and save the lost by the power of the gospel, that hasn't changed. A heart that is overwhelmed with compassion for untouchable, unlovable, unwelcome people, that hasn't changed. His heart is still resolutely set upon us, and that will never change. There is no cancel culture for those who trust in Jesus Christ, we who are his, by faith, are his unchangeably because of his unchangeable character. My hope for eternity rests not in what I have done, but in who Jesus is. That he is not a fickle God, but he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Doctrine matters, doesn't it? it, it when it seeps into our souls, it produces in us a well of tremendous overflowing joy you know that's why satan is always seeking to attack doctrine that's the problem here let's get back to our letter for some of these hebrew believers they've come to saving faith in christ maybe in the last decade maybe in the last five years maybe in the last year we we don't know but you know they anticipated jesus is going to be back any moment in fact almost with every successive day they're shocked Jesus hasn't come back yet. And what's happening as they're waiting is that false teachers are coming along with all sorts of other doctrines. And they're saying things like, you know, Jesus isn't enough. Maybe you need more than this. Maybe you're not doing enough to be saved. Look at verse 9 with me. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Now, diverse means there's going to be a lot of them, Strange means they don't come from the scriptures. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, we don't know exactly what the strange teachings are that he's referring to, but it seems like maybe people are trying to reintroduce legalism into the church. You know, bringing food laws back in, the kosher laws, that you can't eat this, you can't eat that. And you can imagine for a Jew that suddenly being able to eat pork, that's sort of a shock to their system. And so some seem to be saying, no, you can't eat these things. Maybe that's what it is, some sort of legalism. We really don't know, but what we do know is Satan always wants us to believe there is something better than Jesus, doesn't he? In every day, every way, he wants us to believe there's something better than Jesus, and he is relentless in that. So you can take first century legalism You can take 21st century deconstructionism. Do you know what deconstructionism is? It's it's very, very popular right now in our culture. It's a modern phenomenon where people who once seemed to be solid Christians raised in the church are now deconstructing their faith. They're tearing it down. And they say things like this. Well, sure, people believed things 2,000 years ago, but now we know more. People were narrow and exclusivistic then. Now we've sort of become more civilized. People were were bigoted about morality and things like that, but now we know more. And there are many who are walking away from the faith thinking, well, now we're more intolerant. Now we're more, excuse me, we're more tolerant. We're more inclusive. You know what's so appealing about that, by the way? not only does it allow people to go live in sin without any sense of conscience, or at least try to live in sin without conscience, but it's appealing to our pride because we always think we know more than previous generations, don't we? C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. We always assume that we knew more than the past generations. So you hear people say things like, well, yeah, 2,000 years ago, they may have thought uh, that same-sex marriage was wrong, but now we know more. You know what you're doing when you set yourself up like that? You're setting yourself up as actually being smarter than God. I know things that God didn't know. I know things that God didn't anticipate. I am more intelligent than God. Let me say this as humbly and as joyfully as I can. You don't know more than God, and there is nobody you will ever meet that is more wonderful than than Jesus Christ, as he's revealed to us in the scriptures. You will never find anyone more satisfying, anyone more worthy of praise than Jesus Christ. And so as believers, we cling to this truth that Jesus Christ, that we see in the scriptures from yesterday, is the same today. His word is the same. His purpose of saving sinners is the same. Now, here's the reality, and you know this. If we cling to that truth, that Jesus Christ is the same today as he was yesterday, and therefore his word is true and following him is the same as it was 2,000 years ago, if we stick with it, it's going to be really costly, isn't it? That was the the dilemma for the Hebrew believers. If we follow Jesus in the face of our culture, it's going to cost us. Can you imagine that thought? Oh, you can imagine it really, really well. But what was happening was some of them are thinking, you know, maybe we can come up with kind of an acceptable compromise with God where we profess to be Christians, but we don't do all those things that our culture doesn't like. We can sort of be closet Christians and our, our culture will accept us. Boy, that didn't die 2,000 years ago, did it? You know that temptation in your heart? I know that temptation. To say, you know what, I'm going to be a Christian, but not the kind of Christian that's narrow and bigoted about stuff. I'm going to be the kind of Christian that's open and tolerant and exclusive. In fact, I'm going to be the kind of Christian that will tolerate everything. Well, you know, except biblical Christianity, of course. That's nothing new. Look at verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This is talking about Jesus on the Via Dolorosa and all the way to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus was marched outside of the city. He was taken outside of the camp where refuse goes, where you take the trash, where you take the sacrifices that need to be disposed of, the remnant the worthless. Oh yeah, you know who else lived outside of the camp? Lepers, the filthy, the untouchable, the unlovable, the unwelcome. Jesus went outside of the camp. Now that's astounding because the one who never once sinned, the only one who really deserved to be there, who deserved to enjoy the presence of God, He was forced outside of the camp where outcasts and criminals and lepers went, carrying his cross, bearing our shame, dying the death of a sinner. Hebrews is saying, don't forget that, that Jesus was treated with reproach. Jesus was mocked and scorned. Look at verse 13. So let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. In other words, Beloved, to follow Christ is to accept a life of reproach. To follow Christ is to accept that you cannot be reconciled to a lost and dying world, that you will always be mistreated and maligned because that's exactly what they did to your Lord. Why should you deserve better than him? But it also means that when you and I walk the road of suffering, whatever it is, whether it's suffering at the hands of of a wicked culture or suffering just because we're in a fallen world, you are not alone. He walked this road first. That's what Hebrews told us earlier, that he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. And so what that means is as we walk this road of suffering, we're not alone. It's the same road Jesus already walked. Your Savior sympathizes with you. Sorrow and heartache and loneliness are not foreign experiences to Jesus Christ. He understands it firsthand and sympathizes with you. Let me speak to you who are suffering for a moment. This is what the Lord's been doing in my own devotional life this week, and it's been such a joy. Uh, thinking about the creation every day of the creation God would create and then he said it was what it was good that's a the mark of God's that's God's signature there in a sense it is good because it's created by a good God well you come to to Genesis 3 sin enters the world and the goodness of the world has been corrupted let me ask you did it corrupt God not at all, of course not. What that means is that God's work in your life, even in the midst of suffering, and this could be suffering at the hands of a wicked world, it could be suffering from cancer. You can say with great certainty that whatever you are enduring is good because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't feel good, but the, what he will produce through it is good. He has never failed for that purpose. Well, we've talked about Jesus yesterday, Jesus today. Let's think about Jesus forever. Nothing in this world is forever. We're we're coming up on another election season, and it reminds us that there are cycles. One person is in in leadership, and then the next, and then the next. Nothing's forever forever but there will be a day without elections. Can you, I mean, can you imagine how great that will be to not hear campaign ads every four years? There will be a day, we, we've got war today between Ukraine and Russia. There will be a day when war is a thing of the past. There will be a day when cancer is a thing of the past. There was a song when I was growing up from R.E.M. It's the end of the world as we know it. I don't know what Michael Stipe thought the end of the world was going to be, the Bible tells us that one day this world will be rolled up like, like a carpet. Children, think of the carpets that were rolled down the middle aisle in the church for Vacation Bible School this week. And at the end of the week, we rolled them up. And God is going to do that with this world. It'll pass away, and he'll restore the new heavens and the new earth. Everything in this world is passing away, but do you know what will be the same forever and ever and ever? Jesus Christ will be the same forever and ever and ever. This is what we call God's immutability. He cannot change. He doesn't mutate into something else. He can't change for the better, and he won't change for the worse. He can't change for the better because there is no way for him to improve. He is already infinitely good, and he cannot change for the worse because he's a perfect God. Now the fact that God doesn't change and will never change means man has a dilemma. Some of you have this dilemma today. See, there's a God who's holy and omniscient and sovereign. And he is never going to stop being those things. But the problem is, you and I are not those things. And the holy, sovereign, omniscient God has seen that we are not holy the way we should be. We have not lived the way we should be. And our hope really has to be, if we're not believers, and I'm going to speak to you who are not believers today, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, your only hope is that this is not the God you will meet one day in judgment, that somehow he'll change. That's your only hope. The scriptures say he will never ever, ever change. So that means you have two choices. You can either say, I'm going to face this judge on my own, and I'm going to bring them everything I've done. Just think for a moment of everything you've done in your life. Not only the things you've done, but the thoughts you've had. They're going to be laid out like a scroll before this God, and he's going to know every last one of them. And if you say, I am going to face this judge on my own, you are completely unprepared to meet him. His standard won't be lower. He's not going to say, you know, you're a pretty good person. I think I'll let you in. The only way That you can approach this God is through this great high priest, Jesus Christ, who touches the untouchable, loves the unlovable, welcomes the unwelcome. And you come to him by faith. All of us in this room, look around for a moment. Every person you see in this room is going to encounter this God one way or another, either with the guilt of their own sins. the blood of Jesus Christ covering your sin if you're not trusting in Christ that is the most terrifying thought that Jesus Christ is the same forever but a joyful word to those of you who are trusting in Christ Jesus Christ is the same forever let me give you a couple reasons this is really good news for believers first The fact that Jesus Christ will never change means that he who loved me before the world began will never cease to love you even after this world is gone. This is why Hebrews keeps saying, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Because if you start thinking about, you know, I've been a pretty good person, I've done enough, or maybe you're thinking, have I done enough? Have I been a good enough person? It gets really discouraging but as you fix your eyes on Jesus and his eternal sovereign love that is enough I saw this quote by one of my heroes Sinclair Ferguson there isn't a single sin in my life that can possibly condemn me because I am now in Jesus Christ That's important because Satan has a way of reminding us of our sin and bringing them to the surface. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the first reason it's good news. Second reason it's good news for us is that the Word of God is eternal. He's no fickle God. Look back with me at Hebrews 1 for a moment. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. I know that to be a Bible-believing Christian today feels increasingly marginal to the culture And I know you are being called bigoted and narrow and all those different things. And you're being told that the times have changed and that it's time to leave the archaic Bible behind. You're being told that you're on the wrong side of history. I've heard all of those things, and some of you have as well. But because Jesus is unchanging so too is his word. His word will stand forever and ever. His statutes will never expire. And that is good news for us, beloved. Third, the fact that Jesus never changes means his purposes to seek and save the lost are still the same. Last night with my family, we were watching a video from a mission trip to a church in Busega, Uganda, uh, Uganda, and over the door of the church was written just Matthew 16, 18. If you don't know Matthew 16, 18, memorize it. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's one of the verses we use all the time in this church. And so as I watch a, this video of a church from 7540 miles away, it was such a joy to remember that Jesus is building his church in Beaufort and he is building his church in Bussega, Uganda. And that is Jesus' eternal purpose. The church is the reason for which Jesus came. Fourth, it means that because he never changes, there will be nothing that can ever hinder his purposes. So I know that it is easy to look around and feel like, is the church even going to make it? I mean the church big C. Is this thing going to survive? Yeah, it will. Jesus who conquered death is the same forever, and there will never be any power or principality that can hinder what he's going to do. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against her foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. And then finally, this is great encouragement. The fact that Jesus never changes means that for those of us who are believers, one day you and I will get the immeasurable joy of beholding Jesus Christ face to face in his glory. You know, the way, the way Hebrews says it, we seek the city who is, that is to come. It's speaking of, of heaven, the new Jerusalem. If you go on a vacation, if you were to go to New York City, somebody would probably say to you, oh, did you see the, 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 um, the Statue of Liberty? If you were to go to Boston, did you see the Freedom Trail? What's the spotlight of heaven? What's the thing you have to see? It's Jesus himself. And for those of us who are believers, when you close your eyes in death, your first glimpse of Jesus Christ will be utterly Breathtaking. Infinitely more breathtaking than you or I can imagine right now. And what's awesome about that is uh, after, let's say, 10,000 years, we won't grow bored. We'll have only, to borrow Newton's language, we've only just begun to see how glorious he really is You'll never run out of things about Jesus Christ that will utterly astound and amaze you, Christian. These are glorious truths. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our salvation began with him. It rests upon him. And one day it will be completed by him as our faith becomes sight and the, these heaven, the, the, the earth as we know it will pass away and the new heavens and the new earth will be restored and we will behold him as he is. In the meantime, we know based on his own character, he will not let you go. He will not break his promises. His word is true. His promises to you are true. And though your love at times may wax and wane and ebb and flow and grow warm and cold, he does not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Christian life begins, is lived, and ends on the person of Jesus Christ himself. Well, how do we apply this text? The application is so simple. Look at verses 15 and 16. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. What do you do because of who Jesus is? You live a life of praise. You live a life of sacrifice. (coughs) What Hebrews is saying here is that our duty out of gratitude is to bring our life as a daily offering to God the same way that a Jew would have brought an ox or a sheep or a goat as an expression of our gratitude and wonder at what he's done for us and who he is. C.T. Studd, missionary, captured it this way. He said, if Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice I could ever make for him could ever be too great. Go home this afternoon and in your time with the Lord, bring that question before God. What can I do to praise you more, to live more to your glory, to be a pleasing sacrifice to you? That's your application. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that the, the Jesus we read of in the pages of Scripture is the Jesus who today ever lives to intercede for us and one day will return to take us home. Oh Lord, we long to see you in all your glory. And whatever our imagination can conceive of what it will be like to behold you, our imagination is going to fall infinitely short because your glory is far greater than anything our pitiful minds can conceive. Oh, we long for that day, and we praise you that in that day, Jesus Christ will be the same as he has always been, and we will hear those joyful words that we so badly need to hear. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.